Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Professional AF. I am Diana Kander, excited for you to join me on a review of the ultimate, ultimate after action review. Let me paint a picture for you. In 2007, Nokia had 50% of the world's cell phone market. There was a cover of Forbes magazine in November of 2007, and the headline read, Nokia, 1 billion customers. Can anyone catch the cell phone king? And in less than six years, five and a half years to be exact, the cell phone division at Nokia tanked so quickly that they completely stopped selling cell phones and sold the division to Microsoft. That's less than six years. It is one of the fastest corporate collapses of all time. Now, thanks to the research of two business professors, one of which is on the show today, we know that it was fear that was pervasive throughout the culture of Nokia that led to this fall from grace. So we have Timo Viore here, who was one of the two researchers who interviewed 76 of Nokia's top managers, including two of their CEOs, vice presidents, middle managers, engineers, external experts. Plus, they read anything ever written about Nokia articles. They had consultant papers that were written, anything they could get their hands on. The conversations lasted an average of 90 minutes. And these interviews are, in my opinion, the best after-action review ever created. And The After Action Review, which we will link in the show notes so you can read the whole document for yourself if you are so curious, it highlights something really profound. So the biggest aha was that while the senior executives at Nokia were externally focused, they were worried about competition from Apple, Google, research in motion, the people just below them, everybody else, all the other managers, they weren't worried about external threats. They were worried about their managers. They were worried about internal politics. And this dynamic that Timo uncovered is what we're going to discuss. And we're going to talk about how it's also prevalent in literally every other organization that he has studied. Specifically, Timo and I are going to discuss, you know, the most comprehensive case study ever done on a company. I don't know if I've mentioned it. The danger of doing after action reviews internally rather than bringing in an outsider to do these kinds of interviews, how organizations inadvertently create fear within their workforce, and how those fears prevent an organization from taking corrective action when it's very obvious what they need to do. Before we get to the show, please take a moment to write a review, pick a number of stars, anything to help other people get to know about the show. And now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Timo Viori. This season, um, we're, we're spending a lot of time 
talking to experts on failure and, and how to get better at it, but also about half of our time talking to people who are at the front lines of big, epic public failures. And one of the stories that I've always been really interested in was Nokia because I was all of the phones that you listed in your uh paper I was the owner of. So I was a very early Nokia user starting in 1999. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, to see a company with such dominance, you know, you, you set it out in the paper in 2007 when the iPhone came out, they owned 50% of the market. And yeah. just a few years later, they were completely out of the business. Yeah, it was a huge decline, one of the, I guess, fastest collapses in the corporate history. And then the iPhone really changed the game in the phone business, but Nokia also made many mistakes in the process that contributed to their failure. So let's first start, like, how did you decide to do this and who let you do this? Like, did you have permission from people? Or was this... Uh like your your own project? Yeah, so how did I start? Uh, maybe background is I grew up in Finland and Nokia was huge in Finland for all my teenage years uh, and early adulthood, like the symbol of Finnish success and new growth and joining the European Union. And so everything, Nokia was very big. And then the decline of Nokia was equally dramatic. So how could it happen? And it was a typical conversation in any kind of meeting. People would discuss why why Nokia failed so fast. And then I started collaborating on another research project with INSEAD Professor Kuihui, uh, with whom we co-authored the paper. And he actually suggested that we could look into Nokia and I, I was first think that in Finland, no one in Nokia wants to speak. It's such a taboo and they really dislike media. But in any case, I first asked around from a few acquaintances who worked for Nokia and they, they gave me interviews. And then I, they suggested other people that I could talk with. And then I basically moved from one person to another and collected the story. And as I accumulated more research, also the upper management became more willing and open toward the research. And of course, throughout the process, I had very strong research ethic in that I was really developing management theory and trying to make findings that will help other companies. So let's talk about the scope of your research. How many interviews over what period of time? I conducted 76 interviews in. Was it 2012 to 2014? So a couple of years after the things had happened, so that people still remembered those things, but they were not confidential anymore, or they they could be open because they could no longer harm the company by sharing what had truly happened. And in addition, and each one of these, you said the average interview lasted 90 minutes, and you read thousands of articles and books to supplement the the research yeah i read pretty much everything on nokia that i could find in books and a lot of newspaper articles also some internal materials and research articles so we really had the goal of making the most comprehensive study ever on any company as a single case study 
So I really wanted to make sure the number of interviews and other materials is as extensive as possible. I was telling my husband this morning how much better I thought your after action review was than had the company done it internally because people were, I, I don't know, I have my own theories on it. What, how do you feel about it? Definitely. It's always for an insider difficult to admit some of the mistakes they have made and to see the bigger pattern. So when you're an insider doing an analysis, you always look at it from your own perspective and you make too many assumptions about how people are and what was going on and what was not going on. Whereas as an outsider, you can see it from many different perspectives and then combine the perspectives and you feel less need to protect anyone because you have nothing personally at stake. And also, sometimes when you're the person kind of reflecting and taking away the lessons, the lessons you think you learned are not the right lessons. You know, you you can justify behavior because your own ego is, is involved. And, and being an outsider, you get such a rich tapestry of different opinions that you can then put together to get like incredible insights uh, that I, I believe would just have been impossible if Nokia did their own um, internal research. So, yeah, yeah, there are two points by the user. One is the ability to combine different insights. So, you get to see patterns that no single individual can see. But when there are people looking at the same process from many different perspectives, you interview all of them, and then you put all the stories together, you start seeing how the actions and perceptions of one person contributed to the actions and perceptions of another person. And then an unintended outcome resulted from this interaction. And an insider wouldn't be able to see it because they would be one of the actors most likely. And secondly, this when an insider does this kind of a review, it tends to be fo more focused on immediate actionable insights. So you want quick fixes like the software was bad so the problem was in software management but you don't get to see the underlying root causes unless you conduct a very patient analysis where there is no goal of having an immediate fix quick fix coming out from it well i can spend our whole interview telling you how awesome i think it was the paper uh, but let's like dive into it and do our after action yeah. review of what happened at nokia so first can you paint the picture for me of the fast downfall of Nokia from owning the 50% market share? Like what, what happened? What is it that you were exploring? Yeah, so in 2007, Nokia still was the absolutely leading smartphone manufacturer and with the 50% market share in smartphones and about 40% share in mobile phones in total. and. Then Apple introduced the iPhone in early 2007 and iPhone got maybe 1% market share in the first year from the whole mobile phone market. Nokia still introduced the N95 model that year and it sold far more than the iPhone did and it was one of the most successful Nokia phones ever. Nevertheless, three years later, Nokia had lost about half of its market capitalization if I remember correctly, about half of its market share, a big decline in revenue. So 
they changed the CEO. And then a couple of years later, the comp- Nokia sold the whole phone business away. So basically, in five years from market dominance, they went to obsolete in the phone business. And basically, what happened was that people just stopped buying Nokia phones and started buying iPhone and also Android phones. And Nokia wasn't able to match those new competitors with their own phone development. And there were issues, especially in the software. Nokia was unable to improve its mobile phone software fast enough to meet the new competition. And why this happened was that they kept doing too many things simultaneously because the top management team was under the illusion that they had the ability to do both short-term development projects and a new operating system that would match the competition. And that's why they allocated the resources to too many things. And that diluted the development of the uh, new mobile phone operating system that could have matched the iPhone and the Android phones. And then the obvious question is, so why they didn't invest more in the new software development if the challenge was so huge? And why did they believe that they can kind of beat iPhone and Android with uh, only like partial resource allocation? And here what we found was that the top management team was really surprised always when phones were delayed or when the new software development got delayed because they had been always told that it's almost ready, it's almost perfect, it's much better than iPhone and it's just like one month away from being ready. And then a few days before the launch, they got to know that it will be delayed for another three months. And this cycle happened multiple times. And then we started asking from the middle management that why didn't they just tell the top management that it's going to be far more difficult than the top management believed. And here the middle management manager shared that uh, they basically feared top managers' reactions. So if they would share the bad news, the management would shout at them or punish them in other ways. So it was far easier for the middle management to always overpromise for top management and get the punishment maybe later or avoid the punishment completely. But if you said, spoke critically or told the truth or went against the top management, you got verbally abused or shifted to another position or otherwise penalized or punished. And that's why they constantly kept saying to the top management, yes, we can deliver what you need. Yes, we are on schedule and oops, we are not. And then this just happened again and again until the CEO was replaced. And here it was actually funny that CEO who was replaced, he was not the most fearsome person in the company, but it, it had been embedded in the culture of the company more broadly. There were several top managers who had reputation of being aggressive, and some of the most powerful board members also had a very bad reputation. So people in Nokia generally feared telling bad news to top management. What? You talk about fear a lot throughout the paper, and and I love how you, you know some people think that um, 
you know, engineers don't have feelings or certain organizations or like accountants and lawyers don't have feelings, but we're all human beings and we have feelings. We're just hiding it from our coworkers. And so one of the things you, you found was like, everybody had fears. They were just very different between the top managers and the middle managers. Yeah. So I described earlier how the middle management was afraid of top management and afraid of telling bad news to them. But then the top management also was feeling fear, but like there's a very different fear. So they actually feared the new competition and the iPhone and Android threats. So they were afraid that the new competitors will push down Nokia or win Nokia in the game. Uh, and this fear then generated in top management this tendency to put more pressure in the middle management. So we will die unless you deliver, was basically how top management experienced the situation. So they threatened and pressured the middle management as much as they could, which of course then amplified middle managers' perception that the top management is being aggressive and increased the fear that contributed to the dysfunctional communication dynamic between the two. So top managers were afraid of external threats like Google and Apple, but the middle managers were not afraid, right? Because the language inside the company was like, we're better. We've been doing this longer. We own 50% market share. So they weren't at all worried about the external threats. They were worried about their own status in the organization. Yeah, there was in management communication, there was you could say the wrong kind of positivity and wrong kind of optimism that they felt that they just need to show that they are strong and we are winning and they didn't communicate the threat just very strongly to the organization. In addition, uh, the product development organization was quite decoupled from the customers. So the R&D organization didn't direct, directly interact with customers, so they didn't get their customers' negative feedback on their own work and couldn't experience the superiority of the competition. And a third factor that we don't really highlight in the paper, but was relevant, was that Nokia had a culture that everyone was using Nokia phones. So inside the organization, you created this bubble that these our phones are really great and that Nokia people became experts in using their clumsy phones. So they felt that they are good. And those who wanted to use other uh, the competitors' phones, they were almost punished for doing it, or at least frowned upon. So they didn't get the first-hand experience of the competition. And again, this made them maintain or preserve the illusion that Nokia phones are the best in the world, even though the competition was moving far ahead. But if the middle managers had experienced fear toward the competition, they would, of course, would have understood that if they mislead the top management, they put the whole company at risk. But when they didn't have this fear of competition, they felt that the bad thing that will happen is that the product is delayed and top manager eventually will be angry, but nothing fundamentally bad will happen. I find that a lot in large organizations, especially government entities, where people say, 
secretly to themselves, well, maybe this will fail, but I'll still keep my job. You know, I can still get promoted internally, even if the thing I'm working on fails. And so they have a much higher incentive to maybe not be forthcoming with issues, right? Because that will, that's what's really going to get in the way of their personal progress. Yeah. And Nokia also had this relatively high job rotation inside the company. So you work maybe six months or two years in a project, and then you got a new job inside the company. So you were often starting new things without being responsible for delivering them. So you had an incentive to oversell what you were doing and overclaim what you are going to achieve because then it became someone else's problem when you get a new job based on your promises. One of the things you talk about in your paper is how this research might challenge uh, management practice wisdom that moving people around so much is a good thing. So I just wanted you to explain that to me because I've definitely been in organizations that like to reorganize every year and it looked complete like a big mess like nobody really worked on anything they just you know kept their heads down and made their boss happy so that they could make it through the next reorg um so i was surprised to read that that some believe that that's a great practice yeah there was this belief in that renewing or reshaping the organization frequently somehow motivates people or gets them to form new connections or find new perspectives. And all of this might be true as well, to some extent. But the downside was that when people were changing faster than the development activities, or what was the natural rhythm of the development activities, then you had people jumping from one project to another, and no one had the kind of long-term responsibility of the projects, uh, or it really made people more short-term oriented, in even in the level of incentives. And uh, in addition to that, of course, when you always when you change a position, you need to learn a new thing, learn new things, and that takes some time. Yeah, and that's fascinating. How maybe the management felt that they have to do something to get the thing fixed. And they used a lot of external help, the leading consultancies. And what a ma- what management teams can easily do is they can redraw the organizations on organization structure or rethink the structure. And then they can get a feeling that they're somehow addressing the problems. But it might be that it has these negative side effects that make the change outcomes worse rather than better. So you would you say that you attribute what happened at Nokia like fear-based, like the lack of psychological safety in the organization or fear at too many different levels? Like what, what would be the thing that you would say was really like the compounding effect? Uh, Nokia's decline overall dependent on many things. Like technologically, they had inferior technology or some legacy issues in the technology. Then Apple had been developing computers for 40 years when they made a small computer and added a radio chip to it. So it was a tough fight from the beginning or tough uh, tough competition from the beginning. So, So those circumstances, of course, matter. 
But how fear then contributed to the failure was that it prevented Nokia from taking the optimal corrective actions. So if there had been more psychological safety, they would have been far better to analyze the iPhone threat, to understand which kind of response they need to take, what trade-offs they have to accept, what compromises in short-term revenue they have to accept, and where they need to invest more. And then they might have come out better in the process, or definitely they would have come out better and they might even have won the game. What was the reaction from Nokia to your paper? It has been surprisingly positive. So, well, Nokia got a new chairman of the board in 2012, Risto Silasma, who wrote a book about the same time period and more recent years. And he actually, in his book, cites my research as one of the few research papers that he cites. And he also brings up this fear dynamic as a, one of the root causes. So in that sense, I feel that at least part of Nokia truly learned from the study and they wanted to learn from it. And I know also several other top managers who have appreciated the findings out and tried to develop their own leadership based on the findings. But of course, there were some individuals who, especially those who were portrayed more negatively in the study, who didn't react as constructively. <laughs> Tell me about that. That sounds like a good story. Mm. <laughs> I, I don't want another, <laughs> another cycle. I don't know that they listen to this podcast. Yeah. Well, yep. Nothing like no threats right, or right. anything like that, but I've heard that quite critical comments from some of the former leaders. But you have to put it in perspective because when the study came out in Finland, it was in the front page of all really? the tabloids. Yeah. And really, the kind of, you can imagine the tabloid type of headlines about the, I guess I can say it. Uh, it like the chairman shouting so hard that the target's ball shrank, for uh -huh. instance, was in the in this front page in all the oh they they put some of the best stores. quotes. There are a lot of yeah. really great quotes in yeah. in your article, and I think that's actually what makes it so amazing is the direct language from the people who were involved. Yeah. So in that context, then the people who were implied probably felt that it wasn't nice. Right. And some of them kind of denied any of it from happening, even though there was 90% of people corroborating and supporting the findings. And then the debate actually resurfaced a couple of years ago between the old chairman and new chairman in the leading newspaper in Finland. The new chairman was basically repeating what I was saying in the study, and the old chairman was saying that none of that happened and and there, there was clear tension between them as well and then my research was also cited in the newspaper story and have you been in the middle of any other good chairman fights at other companies who want to use nokia as like a model for what's happening uh, 
since I published the study, I've been working with several companies uh, privately, but in quite many, there is this disconnect between top management and middle management. And part of the disconnect is caused by emotional dynamics. So what I've been doing is I've been interviewing both sides, gotten their understanding and basically created a diagram like I created of Nokia and explained it to the companies that, hey, this is now what's happening between you two. And if you keep acting the way you have been acting, you will just escalate the tension and things will get worse. But there is another path that you can start sharing things more openly and less aggressively and try to find more common ground. And, and this has helped many companies. But I was surprised after the publication of how many individuals even emailed me just randomly from different companies that this is so much like our company and and the management by fear and the aggression and its harmful side effects are quite prevalent in both Finland and in Europe and also in US and rest of the world. Do you find the the divergence between the top management and middle management in Nokia is similar in other companies? Like the top management is worried about external threats, middle management worried about their internal political capital. Is that similar? Yeah. yeah. This have, has, been, has been consistent with in many companies. So, and it often comes from the structure of the organization itself. If you have roles for people who are the main customer for that role is inside the organization, then they start mainly paying attention to the internal dynamics and politics, and maybe don't have a big picture of the situation of the company and competition. And here in many companies, it has helped simply to show more of the competition and more of the customers to everyone in the organization. Relatively simple things like uh, for instance, one um, food company that I worked with in their own cafeteria or dining area, lunchroom, they had only their own products so that people could eat them and enjoy them. But what we did was bringing the competitors' products so then people get much better sense of where they really are in the competition. And even if the structure and former role keeps them internally focused, they at least get some perspective on what's happening outside and they remember more often that they need to beat the competition as well and learn from the competition. So what has Nokia done or what have other companies done to address this dynamic? We need to know what, what can a company do to increase the, reduce the fear, increase the psychological safety amongst the middle managers. Yeah. One of the most concrete things that Nokia did was that the new chairman in 2012 started speaking a lot about the fear problem and culture. And he created this set of golden rules that he even shared in Twitter that contained things like that. We debate, but we do it in an informed and respective way. And when there was someone who deviated from the norms in a board meeting or top management team meeting, he would actually take the person who behaved aggressively 
and talk chat with them outside after the meeting that this was not appropriate and then the person would apologize in the next meeting so intentionally managing the climate and discussion dynamics was one of the key things and this is then supported by more formal communication like you have values or formal rules about communication but people really understand the importance and feel that it's okay to intervene if someone behaves in a way that is not according to the norms and here when we when i say understand the importance of climate and psychological safety it's really understanding also the instrumental value of these things so it's not that we behave in a civilized way only because we want to be good people so it's not just an ethical thing but also a performance thing that if you scare people they will not tell you the relevant information and then you will not be able to make the right decision even if you yell at them to tell you the truth right right I, that's right. happening at boeing right now where we see articles of people yelling like now you will start telling us the truth and i can only help but read that and be like okay good luck with that yeah you increase the fear you make people even more defensive and you make sure that or like you increase their tendency to cover their mistakes even more and in more clever ways so if if your own short term survival is at risk you you become very creative in finding ways around the threat yeah and nobody ever got fired for not speaking up you know afterwards like mm. that's the safest thing to do is to not say not to object or criticize it's just to make your boss happy yeah that's probably true yeah and there are some managers who really appreciate the good debate uh, one example is late andy crove intel's former ceo who you could only get his respect if you challenged him and engaged in debate and he had this saying only the paranoid will survive where he meant that you need to really be paranoid about the competition so having this high external fear and he but at the same time he was saying that you need to bring up the bad news and negative stuff so there are some exceptions among leaders who have been doing this really well nokia's new chairman also had this saying that went something like bad news uh, good news is no news no news is bad news and bad news is good news <laughs> so he was really trying to encourage people to bring up the negative stuff but it takes a lot of personal self regulation from the managers when you hear bad news that something hasn't gone as planned it's very difficult not to get angry at the moment because you had an expectation and then something went below the expectation and that's going to cause a lot of problems so it's natural human reaction to feel strong negative emotion and then it's also natural to attribute the negative emotion to the person who delivers the news to you and but then you end up punishing the messenger rather than helping in solving the problem Besides hiring you to do a bunch of interviews, what can an organization do to know that this is going on? 
Like one of the things that I like to tell leaders, if you haven't heard any feedback that's surprising and maybe a little painful in the last six months, a hundred percent stuff's going on that you don't know about. But I don't know. Do you have like rules of thumb of how an organization should know that they need extra attention to this issue? Mm. Some of the climate surveys can be a good indicator if people give low scores on transparency or trust or this simple survey items like I feel that we have safe climate. So sometimes those are good indicators, but if the situation is really bad, then people will lie also when answering those surveys. Uh, Another thing that any leader can do is to observe the meeting dynamics. So will is there debate? Are there critical views? So in any any kind of healthy climate, there would be descending viewpoints and critical questions. But if you don't see those, uh, then it's quite likely that people are afraid to challenge you or or for some other emotional or unemotional reason don't feel that they can bring their perspective at four. But if I'm the chairman, I I can't go into a meeting with middle managers and top managers and have them be normal in any way, right? So what what can I do to to learn about these dynamics? As a chairman, or if you really want to scan the whole organization, then you run into the difficult issue that if there is hierarchy-related fear, as a chairman or as a powerful member of the organization, even if you interview people in the middle of the organization, they might not share everything with you. But quite often, if you ask about the working relationship between one middle manager and his or her boss, you might get insights on what the dynamic is. Maybe not asking directly, like, do you feel safe or is there fear? But more open-ended questions like, how would you describe your latest interaction? Or what, how, can you describe your latest meeting? What, how, how did the meeting unfold? So then the person will just describe what was said during the meeting. And then you can ask questions like, so why, did, why didn't you voice your opinion? Or why did you choose the boss's way of doing this or why wasn't your concern discussed and in this way you can uncover it but as an interview technique the open-ended questions where you focus on concrete behaviors and actions is safer than where you directly try to ask about culture of fear so that's a great let me just dive deeper into it you ask about a specific meeting or a specific instance and you say like did you have any criticisms? Did you hold back on anything? Is that one of the questions? I, like, I just love a good question. So what, what are some of your key questions that you ask to uncover these things? I would even let it be more open-ended that you start by. Uh, so remember you had your last meeting with your boss. So can you just describe how the meeting unfolded? Like who started the meeting and what kind of things did you discuss? And then the person starts telling and you can hear if you let them narrate freely, they will describe if if the boss was asking a lot of questions or if the boss was just telling what what you should be doing or thinking. And 
and you will tell if you had any critical viewpoints or not. And if there is no critique, then your natural follow-up question is like, okay, now you described that your boss was telling you quite much how the thing should go. And based on what you described, you seem to agree on any, everything. Was this really so that you agreed on everything or did you have some doubts in mind? And then that would start unpacking mm -hmm. the dynamic. But really letting the person you're talking with lead the description and have it as concrete narrative as possible. So then you can like observe the situation through the person's words rather than have the person's evaluation or judgment of how the situation went. I feel like a lot of organizations like Nokia would say, oh, thank you very much for this information. Now that we know about it, it's clearly no longer a problem. And <laughs> I, it, it's like my assessment, you need to do one of these on a regular basis to make sure that it doesn't creep back up. I was just curious how you feel about that. Yeah. Yeah, you need to. When you learn about it, you need to take very tangible, concrete, corrective actions to address the situation. But yes, you also need to follow up if things are developing in the better direction or or if you are falling back to the old behaviors. Because the forces that cause these negative dynamics are often quite stable, like personalities of different leaders. Uh, and then the structure of the organization, the communication routines of the organization. So then the emotional reactions that people have and the ways that they behave as a consequence are often the emotions result from complex interaction between the personalities and structure and process and goals. So even if you change the emotion norms and maybe some people the old routines and structures might still push people to behave in the bad ways. Like, well, the kind of radical negative example is some of the military-related things. When you put people in bad situations, they start behaving in very bad ways, regardless of how they are otherwise in life. So certain situations activate some specific behaviors and emotions so you need to understand the, both the psychology but also the organization and the business goals of the organization if you want to make a really effective change in it that's a really good point one of the things you point out in the paper is that innovation organizations are dealing with a lot more fear than a traditional organization can you just kind of talk more about that. That's one of those situations, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, but in in two ways at least in when you're innovation based company, you know that your sales are gonna drop quite quickly unless you innovate something new. So your survival is always at stake. You're creating the future all the time and you're chronically aware that the old practice becoming nearing the end of its life life cycle. So you need to come up with something new. And if you fail, your personal career is at stake. The whole company is at stake. Like happened at Nokia, they failed to innovate well enough and they lost the whole phone business. 
So this threat of failure is more prevalent in this kind of fast cycle innovation industries than in some more stable industries where you can sell the similar kind of product for a longer time period or the improvements tend to be more incremental and therefore you can at least you can believe that the future is more predictable and then you fear less. The second side of the innovation dynamic is then of that the competitors are also more innovative. So you see external threats far more often. And this also can trigger more fear. You can see like frequently that someone has produced something that you right. haven't been able to make. So it, you constantly feel inadequate and that will people like that feature more than what we have cr- been able to create. Yeah. get these comparisons. I think you you articulated something that, uh, I don't know, many of us have been trying to say to people, like it's different in an innovation organization, but this is like one of the key dynamics that's different. The heightened fear of failure causes people to do different things than they did during their previous day jobs. And this could be like if you have an innovation project inside an established organization, not just an innovation company. Yeah, that's true. And the fear of failure can work in two different ways. It can, for some people, it's really motivating that uh, if the fear doesn't get too intense, then it makes you move and work harder and you can get creative because you feel the pressure that you need to get creative. But if the fear gets too intense, then you stop taking risks and and then you come up with incremental improvements. You just hide, right? Yeah. Stay safe. Yeah. Well, this has been so great. I just thank you so much for your for your time and for writing this awesome how-to manual on how to review an organization. Thanks, Diana. It's been a pleasure. Even if you are not the after-action nerd that I am, you got to admit that was awesome, right? I mean, it's the greatest after-action review ever done. So clearly every other one is just going to be a gross disappointment. (laughs) If you want to read the source material and it includes the paper that they wrote includes direct quotes from so many people in the organization. And uh, the quotes are amazing. And I can't believe that they got people to admit these things, feel these things. If you want that, it'll be in the show notes as well as Timo's LinkedIn profile and a way to contact me on any social media to tell me what you thought and what your favorite part of the show was. My name is Diana Kander, reminding you that curiosity is your superpower. Make sure you use it today.